Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Block. Hey. Yes. Welcome back. We are in the middle of nowhere in Western Mass. Apologies in advance. Well, not in advance. It is Monday. This episode will drop later tonight. So we apologize for getting this episode out a day late. But uh, I believe we figured out logistics for the next little while and uh, should not be a problem in the future. Yeah. Make sure that other people don't miss out on this. Tell If you like this, share and, and let other people know. Absolutely. That is important. Yeah. And one more announcement. Um, made a little cameo on Brother Richard Osler's podcast. I did a I did an interview on the phone with uh, Brother Richard Osler and Brother Tekulvi Jackson Van talking about his story with the Pace and Temple in this past week mm-hmm. and talking about our experience as Black Latter-day Saints mm-hmm. as well as RMs and temple workers. So be sure to tune into that. That'll be releasing any day now. And uh, we hope you guys enjoy that. But uh, yeah, this... I just want to quick oh, ask yeah, you: ahead. what do you th- what do you think about Brother Osler? What do you think he's doing well? Let's, let's do that. I really like that he's making a space for conversations that most people uh, would be uncomfortable having mm-hmm. that have more, I suppose, conservative or traditional temperaments in the church. Remember when Brother Matthew Vines talked about uh, the avocados and how yes. uh, we want to reach the ones that are giving just the right amount. Mm -hmm. I feel like brother Osler is doing that for us is he is squeezing the next avocados to ripen. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I feel like he's doing that really well, creating a space for those uh, people to listen and creating a space for people like us to tell our stories. So I really do like that part about his show. And I think it's, it's, you know, sometimes I don't in the church we don't believe stuff unless it comes from an old white dude, <laughs> and he's got the face. He's got it, and and the and and the connections to and, say these things. Yeah, and he's mentioned that many times throughout the uh, show. He's like, "I'm a 58 year old white guy. Like, I got gray hair and all that stuff." And you know, that's he he recognizes the position he mm-hmm. holds, mm-hmm. and he uses that position to lift the voices of people like uh, Tacolvi and I and you and. I just really appreciate that he knows he doesn't understand everything, but he has no problem elevating the voices of people that he may otherwise disagree with or not understand uh, for the purpose of learning uh, the lives of those people better. And I think he's in a, in a very tough spot from a strategic standpoint because if he comes out with a condemnation like, like of the church and of its leaders in a very strong way, he will lose a portion of his audience. So I think that he understands and knows more of the field, and then he's really targeting, like you said, of a certain window of people who are available for change at that moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, th- I think he's doing a lot of good. Did you hear he has, he's writing a book? I did not hear he was yes, writing a book. he is writing a book on how to minister to LGBTQ people. Um, okay. And he is basically deriving this as much as he can from the words of LGBTQ people. Um, and I, I don't know the details of this project. He's trying to answer, you know, common misconceptions uh, that you have in the Latter-day Saint context. And we'll, so we'll see where that goes when it comes out. Um, okay. Yeah, we will see where that goes when it comes out. Do we have a date for that book or is the book already written? Are we no, in like- he's in the process of gathering... Uh, you know, he, gathering LGBT voices and asking what what they uh, what they think, and 
Now, he wants all these voices in his book to be anonymous, which is why I kind of don't want to participate because I want people to know my name yeah. so that if they let, see something that's helpful for them, for them, they know where else to go okay. to get to get further on that. Um, so I'll, I'll see how if and how I participate. I see something that. like that. I, I also. Oh, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. I just wanted to say this is kind of off topic, but. People want to know us as not just, you know, scholars and cool people, but also as normal people. Mm-hmm. And well, then maybe this isn't very normal, but I just wanted to, to say one thing in my life. Now that I'm here in Western Massachusetts for a number of weeks, I have a number of hours every day with with no one. So what I'm doing is learning more magic tricks. And I want to pretend to be a magician. Okay. <laughs> and where I'm going with this is the sort of really ironic juxtaposition of everything I do in my life is in service of the truth. Like I'm an educator. I want people to know facts and I want people to understand and I want people to to have access to the truth and also the truth of the gospel as a theologian. So everything I do is pushing hard for the truth. Yet in this one thing, I'm actually pushing for deception. I'm pushing oh. to mislead and it goes contrary to everything that I now, of course, people know it's fake and they know it's entertainment. It's like that. So I would yeah, never yeah. deliberately. But my, it's so hard to, to put myself in that mode of like I am trying to learn how to mislead people and fool people. And that is a very interesting thing that I don't know how it's going to work out into how I think about things. Mm. But I just think that's a, a fun thing that I'm doing. And we'll see where that goes. You know, there is a very interesting interview I think you'd get a kick out of. It's, it's with Will Smith, and he's talking about the difference between his career as a musician and his career as an actor, where mm-hmm. his career as a musician, as a rapper more specifically, is one where he is bearing his soul, he's telling his truth as a musician, but yeah. then he becomes an actor, and all he, all he does is lie about who he is. And he talks about yeah. that juxtaposition of being his true self in one form of art medium and, you know being a, for lack of a better word, liar in another medium. But, you know, the arts, including drama, can actually tell truths in a more vivid way than just reading the the true story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think the scriptures are like that, too. There's truths there that can be taught in the form of parable or proverb or other narratives that show uh, a lesson to be learned. And we'll get to this in Come Follow Me today. Oh, perfect. I'm looking forward to that. And thanks for sharing that, Derek. Anyway, the uh, the podcast, by the way, by uh, Richard Osler is Listen, Learn, and Love. That's the name of the podcast. So he already has a ton of episodes up with uh, all kinds of members of the church, interesting, cool individuals that he interviews and just gets their stories and uh, learns more about their experiences and how well, more specifically, what we can learn from those experiences mm-hmm. to be better ministers. Uh, Brother Osler is just a great man, and I definitely encourage you guys all to li- uh, listen to him and hear what he's got to say and hear the conversations that he has with these incredible individuals. So uh, moving on from that, we're just going to go ahead and dive into the news. Yay, news. Yeah, I don't know what you want to go over first, Derek. Uh, a couple of these things can stand alone. I think it would be fine if we just go over this uh, BYU thing real quick. Sure. So, uh, BYU, um, their honor code has been in the news a lot lately, particularly because it's uh, so strict and the way it's enforced tends to cause a lot of trouble and uh, controversy among the students and in the nation. So, recently they made some, uh, some additional changes to the honor code. Um, 
they, they made some changes in the honor code office more specifically. Like they made some changes to the actual code itself earlier in the year, but uh, just recently they made some changes to the office and how they, uh, how they operate in there. And uh, they want to emphasize that a student accused of breaking the code would be treated as innocent until either the infraction was proven or the student accepted responsibility for it. And also in the future, students mm -hmm. will also be allowed to choose a chaperone to bring to meetings with honor code office employees who are now going to be called, um, oh gosh, what are they going to be called? They're going to be called administrators instead of counselors which is a pretty important uh, distinction. And they're also going to have external training now from an independent mm -hmm. organization mm -hmm. on how to handle these cases. So those are pretty significant changes that they'll be uh, going through in the future, what they're going through now. January, they got a new uh, head of the Honor Code office, uh, Kevin Utt, I think his name is. I don't remember what it is. The last name is definitely Utt, like but, but without the B. And... Um, yeah, these changes, they are supposed to reduce a lot of uh, anxiety for the students and uh, other negative emotions. So we'll, we'll see, we'll see what, that ha what happens with that. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. You know, we can tie that in with uh, the, this uh, news about Emma Gee, who's an athlete at BYU. Okay. And she must have just come out recently, uh, or I, we just heard about it recently, that she's bisexual. And she is a, she's the only out LGBTQ athlete at BYU mm. and she said she's doing this so that other people feel safer and that they know that they're not alone and that they have a model uh, and it's clear from what she said that she's not the only LGBTQ athlete she probably knows you know people who, who confide in her privately but she's the only out one and I'm wondering like what what does this mean that you only have one out athlete? What does this say about BYU? What does that say about the athletics world? What does it say about, you know, the men's athletics <laughs> part of it? I, I wonder if, um, yeah, what, what are all these variables that, that go into play here? And, and, uh, and I think that to what extent is this a, sim, uh, a symptom of, of underlying change at mm. BYU? I think there's, yeah, tell me your thoughts about these things. No, all I could think of was, uh, as you were talking about that, first of all, that's a great question. What does this say about uh, BYU that we only got one out student athlete? I just want to reiterate something I think we discussed several episodes ago, that some of the most damaging things that, uh, that, a, that an LGBTQ person will experience isn't direct gay bashing like people saying oh you're gay you're a problem or something like that it's the stuff they hear said about their people in passing from other people like uh one of my relatives who identifies as um who, who identifies as a member of the lgbtq community talked about how scared she was of coming out not because of somebody saying that there was something wrong with her but because of another family member probably a parent uh, talking negatively about gay people just in passing, just casually. Mm -hmm. And that had a really um, nasty effect on her in terms of getting the courage to come out. So I feel like this culture at BYU, it kind of uh, goes without saying, given that it is a, you know, a, a church-owned school, a church-run school, and the church currently has policy that does not fully recognize, fully recognize LGBTQ people in the plan of salvation. And I think that might have something to do with it. I don't know if there's a lot of outward gay bashing going on at BYU, but I do know that mm -hmm. environment 
and that policy certainly does not help. So uh, that that that's what I think. I think that for more change like this to happen at BYU, I, I do think that more specific changes need to happen in BYU's honor code with regard to with regard to members of the members of the LGBTQ community. And most pointedly, I would love to just see a more direct addressing of current policy in the mm-hmm. LDS church mm-hmm. with regard to members of that community. Because right now, all we can say at best is that being in a relationship will not get you excommunicated or disfellowshipped. Yeah. That's like the best we got right now. Yeah. So um, I think it'll just take a little bit more for people to have courage to come out in higher numbers. But uh, what Emma did is certainly a great start. Yeah, I, I think that that brings a lot of hope and pride to our, our community. And I'm glad that it's not that that we're not focusing just on gay white men because yeah, as yeah. as cute and cool as we are, we're not the only people and 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 we shouldn't we shouldn't even be the center yeah yeah and i think far far too uh long the the gay white male both in the american secular world and in the church has been sort of the focus of empathy because i think people look at gay white men and say oh except for this one little thing you would have been on top of everything Mm. and it's like how tragic that this one little thing is going to keep you from being being a a GA or something. You know, actually, this is, I hate to, to, to say this because it's kind of weird, but I, I want this podcast to be interesting. So let me tell you one time this. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh, I, so for, for a number of years, I've been a ward missionary, and I frequently teach with missionaries uh, in, in the Brookline ward. And I go out and teach with them and help address concerns, help uh, tie people's lived experiences to the church, help bridge their knowledge of the scriptures with with our understanding. Um, so there's there the missionaries really like me. So I hate to say it like that, but they do. Mm-hmm. And part of the one of the missionaries told me he, he said, "Wow, Derek, you're going to be a, a general authority one day." And I think he thought that was a compliment. I didn't take that as a compliment because okay. it's it's this idea that somehow the the general authorities have succeeded or arrived at, at the destination. And no, it's not the destination of every child of God yeah. to be a general authority. It's mm-hmm. not it's you haven't arrived. They have a particular calling with a particular stewardship and a particular scope of their of of their jurisdiction. Yeah. But that's really true for everyone with a calling in the church, and basically everyone who's in the church is called in some way yeah. as a as a baptized person to do the work of, of ministering and mourning and comforting and all these and lifting others. So we've all got stuff to do. Yeah, and we I talked th- about that last week in the Book yeah. of Acts with Stephen and with the, with uh, Philip. Yeah, and so this this uh, poor elder, he's he, I think he meant to give me a compliment, but I told him no. I said that's not that's not what I'm. I think is is an achievement, mm-hmm. and I think when we think of being a general authority or a bishop or any of those high prestige callings, if we see that as an achievement, we really do a disservice to a fact the fact that there are so many amazing people uh, in the church, and not enough of those callings uh, for all of them to have those high high visibility callings. Mm-hmm. And that's not not a problem with with that. Of course, we there's one body with many members. We all work and lift where we stand and things like that. But to think to tell someone, "Oh, you're going to be a G, GA one day." I mean, like 
No, I don't. I don't want to. I would love to be a church historian. I would love to be maybe a professor uh, at BYU. <laughs> I would not want to be because they. They. I. My theory is that their life is actually pretty boring. They do all this administrative stuff. Like, where am I going to build a temple? I don't want to. With with my background, putting that energy into like, where am I going to build a temple and where am I going to come up with these millions of dollars for this project? Like, I don't want to do that. And I think that's <laughs> a lot of what they do. I see. Um, I mean, and then they get to speak twice a year at a conference. Ooh. Uh, which I think it's, it is important to, to lift up LGBT voices and, and voices of color and women's voices, especially yeah. women's voices. We have a ratio of like 90 to 4. I don't know the exact, uh, but, but we really have many more men's voices than women's in, the, in our general conferences. So let's, So I'm glad that Emma – so my whole point is I'm glad that we're raising up Emma – and I'm going to connect that with with the events at the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall uprising. Okay. So I don't have the details in front of me, but apparently a trans woman of color decided to crash some event with the elite gays. At Stonewall Inn. At Stonewall Inn. And she wanted to read the names of uh, trans people of color, I think trans women of color, who, yes. um, who are the victims of hate crimes. Mm-hmm. And and then the the gays, oh I, I hate to say the gays, the but gays. the gays, but the gays, <laughs> look, <laughs> okay, um, but but these elite gay white men, uh, are like you're crashing our party, like we're celebrating, uh, and we really there's there's a sense in yes we need to celebrate the steps along the way because that's how we get. A movement built that's how we ha- we have energy that we sus- that we sustain ourselves with to keep the work forward yes we can celebrate the minor victories but don't think we're finished i think a lot of rich gay white men who now have marriage equality think they're all set because yeah they can pretty much with all their privilege make up for everything else in their life that they wouldn't uh, otherwise have but we're not all arrived yeah and i think this is a, and I, I can't remember if i read this that the that the white gay man because apparently this this uh woman was was trespassing as she or, or somehow obstructing something so they were going to call the police yeah which is the biggest irony of all Dude. i don't know if they did or not but they were going to call the police which is the whole problem that started stonewall to begin with is mm-hmm. the police uh well anyway so we have to think about these narratives and and realize that the lgbt body in many ways is like the body of Christ we can't be saved or liberated without all of us there yeah um, and it's and it's far too easy for for gay white men of, of power and privilege to just say well I got mine I'm all, I'm all set and we have to remember that speaking of uh, any other thoughts you had on this I mean I was just blown away by the whole thing that it had happened on the 50th anniversary of Stonewall at the Stonewall Inn that was started, kicked off by a trans woman of color, and then we just kind of like shouted down a trans woman of color and called the police on that woman just. That whole thing, I had to consider for a minute the significance of that particular event because Mm -hmm. during Pride Month, that's when this happened, like this was like the last day of Pride Month or whenever it was, that this and this whole thing happened. It just let me know how much more work we have to do. Yeah like within that community for, you know, trans women of color, for people of color in general. And I had to consider 
you know, what my place was in, you know, my allyship, you know, obviously I'm still going to be an ally and I'm still going to work for the, you know, equality and recognition of the humanity of every human soul on this earth. But, uh, perhaps I'm falling short in my advocacy for, um, you know, trans women of color or people mm-hmm. of color in general by the way I participate. And I have to consider that in the future. For example, something I did consider was the fact that I didn't see very many black people, particularly black men, wearing the rainbow at the pride parade that, you know, we attended. And I wasn't sure if that meant anything in particular, but the only thought I had in my head as I considered that and considered this story was perhaps there's some sort of recognition that those colors don't represent everybody mm-hmm. and that has to be that has to be acknowledged and that's why i love the philly pride flag from 2017 where they added a black and a brown stripe on top of the oh, red yes. stripe and you won't believe that the, the 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 privileged white gays came out and condemned that flag like what are you thinking what for like what is the problem and like they that now the, now the irony you know is a lot of these men have dated and had sex with brown and black men. Dude, don't even... A lot of them were there with black and brown men, like these people at the Stonewall Inn. A lot of these rich white men have dated, you know, poor black and brown men or were there with poor black and brown men. And, that, was, that was nuts. And yeah, we, we have to name that. And, and the other thing is, connected with the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, the NYPD officially apologized for raiding the Stonewall Inn 50 years ago. Now, why can't you apologize for and actually make substantive change in your your whole entire criminal justice approach mm-hmm. with in terms of poor people and people of color? Like, we're not even at the point where you can apologize for it because you haven't even stopped what the what's what's wrong. For real. So yeah, so that's Stonewall. Speaking of of uh, uplifting gay white men, let's talk about Alan Turing. Yes, Alan Turing. I heard this yeah. on the BBC this morning. Apparently, they're putting Alan Turing on the fifty euro note or something the like that. Pound, oh, fifty yeah. pound note. Yeah. My bad. In, in the in the United Kingdom. Yes. In the on the fifty pound note, they're uh, they're putting him, and I'm like, wow. And there's this, there's a part of me, yeah, yeah. He's he's we shouldn't center gay white men. But there's a part of me that felt a sense of pride and vindication knowing that one of my ancestors, you know, here, let me just sidebar and say, we who are queer um, don't have, from in my experience, a good connection to our ancestors because our literal ancestors were mostly straight or in further generations back are perceived by history to be straight. We don't know. I don't know who in my in my literal biological ancestors if any of them were lgbtq mm. i don't know that um and i think there are certain populations that can very strongly derive a sense of heritage and pride um and endurance from their ancestors yeah like i that's one thing that like I, I noticed that. about the the black panther movie is how much the invocation of one's ancestors was uh was central to the actual uh culture of the of the movie mm-hmm. and i'm here sitting like a lot of my ancestors like you know 150 years ago they probably would have killed me mm. they they would have you know um sodomy has been a capital crime the lgbt there's hate crimes even for people who just identify as as lgbtq and apart from what the, what crimes they 
crimes they may or may not have committed. And I'm like, even as even as as late as the 50s, 1950s, Alan Turing was prosecuted for yeah. being gay mm-hmm. um, and having gay relationships. And we have to see, and that's I think one of the biggest dramatic reversals. There's a lot of good dramatic reversals in scripture. Someone that's on the bottom who has everything going wrong for them. Now it's all going right. Mm-hmm. Um, we see this with Esther. We see this with Joseph. We see uh, uh, Joseph in Egypt. We see this with um, Jesus, of course, in the resurrection. But that's so powerful that the same government that convicted him and drove him to what apparently um, uh, it, it's I'm actually uncertain as to whether he died by suicide or whether it was an accident or he died in such a way that he, he, it was plausible for his mother to believe it was an accident. Mm-hmm. It's really unclear to me. I, I wasn't there. Um, he ended up uh, dying by uh, cyanide poisoning. Um, but we'll see what happens with, with this because he he was condemned by his own government that now not only pardoned him, pardoned, the queen pardoned him, Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in 2014, and now he's on the 50-pound banknote. I'm like, wow, why can't we put something other than straight white men on our on our currency? I'm still waiting on them Tubman 20s. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I want my reparations in Tubman 20s. <laughs> waiting on it. Right. Um, so, yeah, and I think I just think that's a very interesting thing of how, like, far we've come and how far we need to go. And let's just back up. People might not even know who Alan Turing is. So let me just say he was probably one of the main reasons why uh, England and the Allies won World War II, um, or at least shortened it by a number of years oh, Yeah. By dis- by using his talents— to to break the German um, uh, the German cryptograms, mm-hmm. and so what they were able to do is is decode the Enigma machine, and then re and then and then they're able to understand all of the um, of the German communications that were supposed to be encoded, um, and the, and the the Germans they didn't do their um, yeah they they didn't do their their job you know well enough. They should have had, uh, well, anyway. But my point is, like, he was a hero that most of the world didn't know about because his work was classified, of course, because mm-hmm. the, the British wanted to keep their knowledge of cri- cryptography secret from everyone in case they needed to use it again. So most people didn't know that this gay dude who died, and he, he never lived to, to even see his recognition publicly. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering... How's that going to be in the church? There's going to be, be people who die before they ever see official vindication mm. by our by our church. Yeah. Um, and we'll remember them after the fact. We're going to remember their names. Jane Manning. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And so we'll we'll see we'll we'll see how that goes. We will. Got one more news story here that I wanted to discuss, and that is the. Gosh. Oh, yeah. The, the PRRI survey. study. What does that stand for again? Religion is in there. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a study that basically compared um, a survey from 2014 to 2019. So it's it's recent and up to date, and it shows basically changes um, 
in a changes in perspective or opinion on so many different issues. This the title of this survey is called Increasing Support for Religiously Based Service Refusals. Mm. Uh, centering around like whether people can claim a religious basis for discriminating um, against gays and lesbians, uh, transgender people, atheists, Muslims, Jews, African Americans. Uh, and so all of these attitudes were surveyed here. And of course, those of us who have who've done some of this work realize, yes, oh, this, these feelings are here, but, but we, we didn't realize, or what I didn't realize, is that among some, some demographics, like, um, uh, like conservative, uh, like white evangelical Protestants, the amount of support for for discrimination doubled in the past five years. Jeez, it literally doubled in many cases, um, uh, especially for the for the right to refuse to serve gay and lesbian people. Which, if you think about 2014, it still wasn't wasn't perfect, right? Mm-hmm. But it was. But we have this narrative of oh, it gets better, and people are waking up, and and it's as as we come out, and it's people people are getting less anti-gay and i think on some levels that that's true but it's surprised to see that um that 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 these things increased so significantly in the in the past five years um and i just wanted to name that and say we've we've got more work to do Mm -hmm. uh these people um Oh yeah, and here's this. So this, the support for religiously based refusals to serve African Americans. Um, you have 22 percent of white Protestants think it's okay uh, to have a religious basis for for refusing African Americans. 22. Right. That's one out of five. Yep. Um, Looks like white. Okay, yeah, white evangelical, white evangelical Protestants. Protestants. Okay. Yes. I'm like this. Twenty-two percent. Shoot. Yeah. Um, and the religiously affiliated were eleven percent of of them. Okay. And I'm, and I'm like, wow. There's there's just some certain trends among among our our religious siblings that 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 are quite quite disturbing. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, now he, okay. This is going to be dumb. I'm going to expose my white privilege here. But as a theologian, I actually don't know what the theological basis of their claim would even be mm. for white Protestants. <laughs> like, I can't think of what their excuse would be. I can't think of anything in the scriptures that they could use to appeal. Now, I know some of the the, the theological basis behind slavery. Yeah, behind, behind slavery. Behind segregation, even. Yeah. But, but to but in the in. in with the modern evangelical mindset, like what are they using to support these things? And I don't even know. Yeah. Which is disturbing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I told you this, Derek, I was on the, uh, KKK's website about uh-huh. a month or two ago. And, uh, that didn't really exist there either. Like, cause you know, majority of the people in the KKK claim some kind of religious mm-hmm. affiliation. In fact, they use God as a justification yep. for, uh, their hate. However, they didn't really go into quoting any scripture when talking about 
uh, who's superior to who. In fact, that part of their website just says it doesn't matter who's superior to who. God created us all. And, you know, they don't go out and say that they believe they're superior to other people, but it's there and there's no yeah. scriptural justification yeah. for it. A lot of their rhetoric has changed from being um, supremacists to separatists. Like Separatists as a method of preservation because yeah. they fear the genocide yeah. of the like, white race. Like black people are equal. I just want them over there, which obviously is not equal. Mm. But that's what they're saying or that's what they have to say. And, you know, let me tell you, I don't know if I should be proud of this but I'm ineligible to be in the KKK because I'm gay. Like I looked at the application, don't ask me why, but I looked at the <laughs> application to join the KKK. It asked you explicitly, do you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Mm-hmm. And you have to say yes to be part of the, this order of the KKK. This okay. Gr- this group. It asked if you were Jewish and it asked you if you are gay. Mm. And if you are not a believer in Jesus, if you are Jewish, or if you are gay, you are ineligible. It actually didn't ask if you were black. Well, actually, you can actually be black yeah. and be in the KKK yeah. now. Like, yeah. <laughs> real talk. You can be yeah. black and be in the KKK. That yeah, is a it, real thing now. Yeah, and and so, so, so yeah. So I, I'm uh, ineligible to be in the KKK. All right. That's... So that's... I, I don't know if I had anything more about the survey to say. It's just uh, something we should know. Yeah. Now we are who are Latter Day Saints should absolutely defend the rights of Muslims and Jews mm-hmm. as people who know what it's like to be religiously persecuted mm-hmm. and have not forgotten this. Like we hear about about um, Lilburn W. Boggs and his <sighs> extermination order, like Yo. all the time. Yo. And like, like, do you not even connect this to people today who are who are literally driven out of their homes because of their religion? People who are in this country, like we were in this country, we think America is safe and we have, you know, uh, freedom of religion, and we should be the first. And and Joseph Smith in his lifetime really did stick up for other religions mm-hmm. in terms of civil um, civil rights and civil equality. He stood up for the dignity of other religions, um, and we we have an article of faith that says we claim the privilege of worshiping almighty God according to the dictates of our own conscience and allow all men the same privilege. Let them worship how, where, or what they may. There is no excuse for Islamophobia or or um, anti-Semitism in the church of Jesus Christ. Correct. Yeah. That's all I was going to say about it okay. as well. It's the 11th article of faith. It is not only in the articles of faith, but it is scriptural. And I'm glad mm-hmm. that you just went ahead and quoted the entire 11th article of faith because that's really all I was going to say about that. So, oh, whoops, sorry. No, it's all good. It's all good. If it got said, that's all that matters. Okay. So uh, with that, um, I think that's all the news we got. Do you have anything else, Derek? Nope, that's it. Perfect. And let's go ahead and move on to uh, – I've, I've been waiting for a while for this, but uh, the Come Follow Me lesson for the following week is Acts 10 through 15. And yeah. Goodness, Derek. We um, I know we both got some thoughts about this, so uh, let's just let's just go right into it. Okay. I know you're gonna have several thoughts, um, but I think the biggest theme that we're probably going to use as the umbrella of this conversation we're about to have mm-hmm. is this notion that God is no respecter of persons. Right. That seems to be the big th- big theme, particularly mm-hmm. of Acts ten and eleven. And um, I really wanted to read into this the necessity of integration, kind of a mm-hmm. capstoning of the incidents of the t- the incident at the Tower of Babel, where we were all one people, 
Then we got separated by languages and mm-hmm. race. And then we started to set ourselves apart and have pride in the things that made us different, whether it be our language or our race. And then it seems that at this moment where Peter is receiving this revelation to uh, share the gospel to everybody, that period is now being closed. We are no longer separating ourselves by pride in our race, but rather we're adding a third and significantly more important identity towards our person as a disciple of Christ. In fact, Acts chapter 11, this is the first, is this the first time we see the word Christian used as a, yeah, it's the first time we see Mm -hmm. the word Christian ascribed to the followers of Jesus Christ, which I think is super interesting. It is the time where pretty much all class and all racial differences between people where the ethnic Jews are no longer the only ones allowed to partake of the gospel, where that distinction no longer matters. Mm -hmm. We finally see the word Christian be introduced into the scriptures as a means of identifying the followers of Christ as their most important identity. So I just wanted to, I just wanted to acknowledge that briefly. I don't know if you have a thought about that, Derek. I just, I, 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 I can't remember exactly where this is. I think it's in, in the uh, uh, church father Eusebius and his history of the church. Uh, this is the third, okay. uh, 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 the fourth century. He talks about the Roman persecutions, and there's this one instance of a Christian martyr um, suffering under Rome, and the Roman official comes up to this Christian and repeatedly asks him, what's your name? What's your tribe? Like, what's your, what's your, uh, what's your employment? What's, what do you do? And every single he refused to answer any of those questions except with one with one uh, sentence he said Christianos sum I am a Christian mm. to every one of those questions like who are you what is your name I am a Christian what is what is your job I am a Christian what is your tribe I am a Christian he would refuse to to tell anything about himself but the irony is he actually told everything about himself because yeah. that informs all of your life like all of these other distinctions don't matter in Christ and that's really mm-hmm. what the argument of Galatians chapter 3 is mm. well okay then so uh yeah I just wanted thanks for sharing that by the way and I just wanted to name that as uh you know something that God mentioned and something that seemed to be implied by this introduction of the word Christian was just that that is the most important identity that we have that is the primary thing I wanted to highlight and uh, I would really feel more comfortable Derek if we went through the points that you had because yeah, I know yeah, that what it, I have to <laughs> and then I then I want you to rea- react to each of my points so, I can do that good so the, so the the main outline here is you have, at this point in the book of Acts, only Jewish Christians. Yes. You do not have um, any Gentile believers until Cornelius, who is the first. Cornelius. So, so people know, uh, I mean, he's a centurion, he's a Roman, um, and he's a he's one of the good ones. You know, mm-hmm. he's he's a believer in God. He's a God-fearer. He prays. He, he gives money to the poor. And so he's less like this good guy. Um. And part of the historical context is you had a lot of people hanging out with the Jews who didn't fully convert to Judaism because of the extra commitment and intensity that this required. Mm -hmm. And so you had a lot of people who would learn the wisdom uh, and teachings in Judaism. And Cornelius was one of these God-fearing Gentiles. Um, And so people know this, but people... I think most people know this or know this story, but what I'm going to bring out some details that people don't notice. These details are there, but they don't really notice this. That is why we're here, Derek. So what happens is, so Cornelius had a vision um, that basically said, "Your prayers have been answered," uh, and Cornelius was a, a Roman, a Roman centurion in in uh, Caesarea, 
on the coast of of the Holy Land. And Cornelius, the point, the first point I want to make is that Cornelius had his vision first before yes. Peter's vision. So yes. Cornelius had his vision that he was included. And then Peter, who we would probably now say has, was the highest-ranking priesthood so basically official. Basically the president of the church. Yeah, basically the, 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 the most prominent leader in the church. He had his vision after Cornelius did. Mm. People, a lot of people think, well, Revelation is all spoon-fed to us by the prophet. And here's a clear case of, of Revelation actually happens in the real world mm-hmm. in, in, in complexity. And so Cornelius knew first, and the, you know, the Luke when he when he's writing uh, to us actually gives us timestamps mm-hmm. of when. So <laughs> the sixth hour, the ninth, all that mess. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So at the so Cornelius has his vision at the ninth hour, which we would call three p.m. Mm-hmm. So at the ninth hour in the afternoon, which is a, which is a, the time for afternoon prayer, he is has the has his vision and Peter doesn't have his vision until the next day at the sixth hour, which is noon. So you've, we've got timestamps and you had, um, uh, the whole travel time between Caesarea and Joppa to take that takes place within that time. Um, uh, and so here's what's happening. Um, yeah. And the other thing to notice is that Peter was reluctant with his, uh, so he had to hear. He had to hear. He had to get get the memo three times. Cornelius yeah. only had to hear it once before mm-hmm. he believed it, mm-hmm. because he was affected yeah. by it. And Peter, uh, his vision started out uh, with seeing unclean animals, kosher, uh, unkosher animals, with, and the voice said, "Rise, Peter, kill and eat." And he said, "No, I'm not going to do that. I've never eaten any unclean thing." And the, and God told him, "Oh, this is so beautiful." Yes, yeah, say it. What God had calls clean, how dare you call it unclean? Yep, speak on it. And later on, when Peter teaches, he applies this to people. Mm-hmm. He he actually says, "Person, you know, uh, what I learned is that that pe- the people that God that God is no respect of persons, and He's declared all people clean, and I cannot call them." Uh, but anyway, but that's what he after he learned. So he had the vision three times before he got it, and then Cornelius ar- arrives. Um, and so, yeah, your thoughts on 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 that? I, I mean, you, you brought this up at least two or three times in the past episodes, yeah. Derek. Just this notion that uh, Cornelius received his vision first, mm-hmm. and I just want to mm-hmm. make sure I reemphasize how important that is because the fact that Cornelius knew he had a seat at the table before the president of the church knew that he had a seat at the mm-hmm. table mm-hmm. should Amen. give us so much hope for our respective journeys. Now, I am fortunate to have been born at a time where I n- I've always known that I have a seat at the table in spite of, in the past, my people not having a seat at the table. But there are people on the earth today who are members of the church today who don't necessarily have that knowledge. Now, you, mm-hmm. Derek, I liken you to... to, to Wow. I liken you to Cornelius a lot of the time because you know you have a seat at the table. Oh, I do. Yeah, I brought a folding chair. You you brought a folding chair. Yeah. You're if like there's no seat for me. I I bring, God provided a folding chair. Yep. And I brought it. So you like you you know already. The the leaders of the church don't know yet, but you do know. And mm-hmm. part of the reason we are here, Derek, is so that a lot of people like us, particularly people like you can know they have a seat at the table. Because there is a scriptural precedent, an actual ancient precedent mm-hmm. for regular Joe Schmoes like us, knowing, will, knowing the will of the Lord for us before the prophet of the church does. Right. 
And right. that is yeah. super encouraging. That should be super encouraging to anybody who, find them, who finds themselves in a similar situation. And this whole logic of, oh, you can't get ahead of the profit is, makes no sense. I could probably think of many other – we don't have time, but there's well, so many other sh- things that, that I could um, – where people just, just don't get it. You know? Yes. And uh, it takes someone who has skin in the game to say, look – I am bringing this before the Lord. It affects me. So I'm going to ask these questions. I'm going to ask all these right questions. I'm going to do the homework. Yeah. And that's, I think, what Cornelius did. Because this is response to his prayers. Don't forget that detail. He was praying to God. And this was a response to his prayers. Yes. So that gets to my next point, point number two, that revelation is prompted by real situations on the ground. Mm -hmm. That is... Peter's revelation was prompted by the fact that Cornelius was literally on his way to his house. Yep. Cornelius was coming, and the vision was basically, this dude is going to show up, and you need to accept him. And and because revelation comes when there is a practical need for it, we have to be realistic about certain time frames, right? God's not going to tell us everything we need to know in 1830 that's not how he did it even in joseph's lifetime so yes there's going to be revelation that continues to unfold Mm. Um, and it's like gps the gps little thingy doesn't tell you all the steps i mean you can look at all the steps yeah but it but it won't tell you if those steps have to be adjusted later because you made a mistake yeah that is real time on the ground it will adjust to the real situation on the ground and i think that's what's happening in the church today absolutely so the, the third point that I, that I want to bring in is um, from Acts chapter 15. So here's what happens. Okay. You've got this whole Peter and Cornelius situation. Then you've got Paul starting to preach to the Gentiles throughout cha- uh, um, chapters 12, 13, and 14 of Acts. Then in chapter 15, everything blows apart because you have a, a, the first major controversy in the early church. This is typically called the Jerusalem Council. They get together and actually have a debate and there are two, uh, two factions to this. There is the faction that says that, yeah, Gentiles have a place, but they essentially need to do what we would call convert to Judaism first. Mm. Everyone's welcome, but they have to conform to what we are. Remember, everyone who is Christian already is already Jewish. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, they have a place, but they need to get circumcised, which is kind of a deal breaker for a lot of dudes. Um were Hellenistic Jews the same way? Uh, the Hellenistic Jews were all circumcised. Okay, just making sure. Yeah. I wasn't sure because yeah. like Paul was Greek and stuff. What? Yeah, they, I, okay. they, were, they were circumcised. Now, some of them didn't like the fact that they were circumcised and tried uh-huh. to conceal uh, that okay. um, if they were in a very Gentile area and they wanted to, to assimilate, but that's okay. a separate thing. So if you were an ethnic Jew, you were circumcised. Right, or, or a convert. Or a convert, or, okay. Or, or a convert. All converts were, were circumcised. And that's clearly in the law of Moses. That was the covenant. Gotcha. So so these these uh, first party, the party who speaks first in Acts chapter 15, actually had <laughs> the a party. <laughs> the circumcision party. Got it. Yes. Which <laughs> okay. uh, uh, the, the first party who, who spoke actually kind of had a point. They're like, yeah, everyone's welcome. You just got to get with the plan. You got to follow the covenant path as it's been done for thousands and thousands of years. There's mm-hmm. been no other way to be part of God's covenant people at this point, except through um, the the covenant of circumcision and keeping kosher and o- obeying the the calendar, the the Sabbath, and all these these things that are very clearly. 
part of what it means to be God's people. The Torah is clear. If you don't do these things, you are cut off from God's people. Um, so that's the setup. They had, a, and, and it's not like, oh, we don't want the Gentiles to join. It's like, oh, they can join, but they need to be circumcised. So that's, I think, where you, where you get the real uh, connection to the LGBT world. Because people will say, well, okay, queers are welcome, but you got to pretend to be straight. Or you got to pretend to be cisgender. And I think that's where the real bite to this passage is. So, so setting this up, um, I want to, to talk about the t – so there's this debate that breaks out, um, and, and this is in verse 7. There's, there's a great debate. Oh, by the way, I, I have, I'm, I'm going to be uh, quoting the Greek New Testament for this portion Okay. because if something's really important, I'm going to say it in Greek and then translate it because then people might think it's really important. Um, <laughs> Got it. And so, so here's what I'm going to do. So, so then, um, so then, first Peter speaks up, and then he speaks for a little bit, and then in verse twelve, you have this is this is my my favorite part. I think of of Acts chapter fifteen. It says, "Esigesen de pantoplethos kai ekuon Barnaba kai Paulu exegumenon." Hosa epoyesen hothios semea kai terata entois ethnesen diauton. And in English it is, Now the whole multitude kept silence, and, and they were listening. So here you have an imperfect verb, which, which connotes a, an ongoing action in the past time. So, so Greek has four different past tenses. This is a vivid way of, of, of having an ongoing action. And so they, so they um, made it a practice of listening or they kept on listening or they were listening. or it Basically, it, it shows that they um, had this on listening as an ongoing process. So they listened right. to Barnabas and Paul um, as they explained the signs and wonders that God did among the Gentiles through them. And the through them is through Barnabas and Paul because they had been working among the Gentiles. Okay. I just find this so interesting that the two things that the, that the crowd did is that they, one, they, they, they became silent. They got silent. And two, they listened intentively in an ongoing manner. And I think that is so amazing because this verse is actually the the whole turning point in the narrative arc of Acts chapter fifteen, because there was debate, there was there was confusion, there were people on all sides up until this verse, and after this verse, there's no more debate, hmm. there's no more contention, there's no more other side, ever uh, presented. People coalesced around this because they listened to what. Uh, what actually God was doing among the Gentiles. And this is actually Peter's point in Acts chapter 11, um, Acts 11, verse 17. He says, God is the one who did these miracles among the Gentiles, the miracles of faith and tongues and, and um, all these gifts of the Spirit. Like, if God is the one who did this among the believing Gentiles, who am I, Peter says, to hinder God? So he's not like, he's actually saying God is the one that's on the move here. God is doing this. How can I stop God? I think this is similar to what's going on here. And so then after this, um, James gets up and backs up Peter. Uh, and I'll, I'll get it, get into that later. But I think that, I think that is so beautiful that, that what changed the whole conversation is the people with power and privilege 
got silent and they listened to what was going on on the ground among the marginalized. And this is relevant to, um, obviously, people of all races and ethnicities as well, not just LGBTs. It's a matter of, like, looking at God as no respecter of persons. Um, people of all nations can be part of God's uh, covenant people. And there's the second incident we had like this so far in Acts. Like we were reading about the apostles, well, the Greeks mm -hmm. coming to the apostles being like, hey, our widows need help. And mm -hmm. yeah. the primary thing that you pointed out last week or two weeks ago whenever we discussed it was the fact that they listened. And then what they mm -hmm. did next mm -hmm. by appointing, you know, additional disciples to handle that problem from their population I mean, there are significant incidents here where we have people in power being willing to listen and settling disputes yep. Yep. by by uh, relinquishing some of their privilege. I don't even know if that's the right word. Yeah, that's how. Well, that's what I would say is because they had the option of of like not listening. Yeah, and they could ignore them and still ha still have power. Yeah, but they but they didn't exploit their own power. They didn't they didn't use their their um, their magic trump button I, I didn't mean trump is like donald trump i meant <laughs> as like when you trump something yes right? the verb the the v they didn't veto right they had veto power but they refused to use it because they were christ-like and mm -hmm. because they 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 had christ's mission um so that gets into my fourth point which i already hinted at is is this whole idea of of the word cov this covenant path we've got this buzzword in the church now oh you got to stay on the covenant path and for these people in the first century the covenant path literally changed dramatically. And we get this very clearly in Paul's argument um, in his letter to the Galatians. Mm -hmm. Because for, for to be part of God's covenant people was essentially synonymous with circumcision for males, mm -hmm. um, with keeping kosher, with keeping uh, the laws of Moses. And there was a path. And theoretically, there was a place for everyone to just, you know, distort themselves to fit that path. Mm. And what breaks through all this is Paul saying, look, our unity is in Christ. Um, in fact, if you, circum if you allow yourself to be circumcised, you are abandoning Christ because you're, you're fixating on the wrong thing. So what he does, is, is, it's not that the brilliance of Acts 15 and, and Galatians isn't that they included Gentiles. It's that they included Gentiles on their own terms. Mm. And people will say, well, yeah, gays are okay, but you got to marry a woman or you got to be single. What happens to including my people on our own terms? That mm. is that is the ever-expanding circle of the gospel as it has always been. Mm including people on their own terms coming to them in their you know in a way that they can can latch onto and understand mm. um yeah so so read all of galatians it's just go home and read that <laughs> all my listeners it's, it's powerful um yeah and 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 of course in galatians is where where paul says that we're neither slave nor free mm -hmm. um in addition to uh, abolishing the distinction in Christ between slave and free, uh, male and female, it's also Jew and Gentile. And it's the Jew and Gentile distinction that really is the focus of Paul's argument in, in Galatians. Mm. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about my fifth point. So the fourth point was about this covenant path um, and how the covenant path radically changed. The fifth point is about this hypothetical argument that could have arisen. 
and I'm sure people in the in the mid first century, this was probably around the year 50, 20 years or so after the uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus, 20 years. Someone could have could have stepped up and said, "Well, if Jesus wanted to include the Gentiles on their own terms, he would have done it while he was here," <laughs> and and he actually didn't. He didn't. Um, he 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 left hints and clues, like he says, you know, preach the gospel to all all uh, all nations, all Gentiles, as we see in Matthew twenty eight, and he has hints of this, but but his mission was to God's people, Israel. Um, up until up until his death and resurrection, and people could have used that argument and said, "Well, if we've got all the revelation we need, Jesus was just here and he didn't tell us any of this." Because you know, here we get this we get this told uh, us as queer people a lot. Like, well, if that's the way it would have been, Joseph Smith would have done it, mm-hmm. or he would have you know had gay ceilings back in the eighteen forties if that's what God wanted. Joseph Smith would have done it, which completely contradicts the truth that I said in point number two, that revelation is prompted by real situations on the ground. I can't think of any situation where this would have come up for Joseph to ask. Mm. I can't think of two, like, it would be different. It would be completely different if two gay men came up to Joseph and Joseph went to the Lord and said, okay, now I know what to do. Mm. We don't even have that. People assume that the ceiling power is only for straight people, but the problem with that is this underlying homophobic assumption that it's that being uh, in a male male or female female relationship is a radically different kind of relationship. They put it in a different category. It's homophobia that makes them put it in a different category. Like if the ceiling power is here for families, mm-hmm. it's here for all families. You don't. It's not like we're a different kind of family. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not. It's not that this uh, at its essence a gay couple. A gay marriage is is a different kind of marriage. It's not a different. I don't. You, you see my point here? Yeah, man. People are. It's it's like, um, it's it would be like assuming interracial marriage is a different kind of marriage, and you need a special thing for it. You need a no, special yeah. doctrine or a special policy for yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so this idea that Jesus would have done it is completely disproved by by the fact that that's not what happened. Yeah. They got revelation when Cornelius showed up. Yeah. Not not during Jesus' lifetime, and we didn't get all the truth that we needed to know about um, uh, about queer people in Joseph Smith's lifetime. Joseph is the beginning of the conversation, not the end. Mm-hmm. I think there's a similar um, ironic thing to say about uh, about the priesthood ban because mm-hmm. people would would probably did say, "Well, if uh, if that's what we wanted, Joseph would have done it," and he did. He did. Yeah. He 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 ordained Elijah Abel. Mm-hmm. Right, he did it, and then somehow still people were 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 able to. So even if Joceph had done done queer ceilings, people would still come up with some excuse, yeah, for for not for not not dealing with it. Mm-hmm. So that's my fifth point. Okay. Now the sixth point is very interesting because this is almost backwards. A lot of people in the evangelical world they start out with scriptures and then use that to apply it to their lives. Okay. But in in the in the Latter-day Saint world, there's a situation in which we read the scriptures in light of our experience. We like we're supposed to liken the scriptures unto ourselves. And that's exactly what happened in in the first century church because you have all these very clear texts in the Torah that says, you know, you have to be circumcised if you're male. If you are not circumcised, you are cut off from my people. Um 
it, it's clear. It's there. It's as clear as any of the things that people say are clear about gay people. But what happened is they had all that precedent. But until Cornelius showed up in front of them and until all these Gentiles showed up in front of them, they didn't look through the scriptures with the eyes that they now have. So what they did is they took, they, they now, after Cornelius showed up on their, literally on Peter's doorstep, they began to read the Hebrew Bible with fresh eyes and saw stuff that they never saw before. They saw pro, and there are pro-Gentile texts in the, in, in the Hebrew Bible. I mm-hmm. use the word Hebrew Bible instead of Old Testament um, because my Jewish friends have, have asked me not to, to say Old Testament because it's like, oh, it's old and it's expired and we've got this newer and improveder version, <laughs> um, which now we who are Latter-day Saints have an even newer and improveder Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. We're the ones with the extra sequel and make all the evangelicals mad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but anyway... So they've, and they actually quote from the Hebrew Bible. Uh, James comes along with and quotes from Amos 9 and says, Look, God actually says there's a place for Gentiles. And they never saw that before in that way. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and Amos prophesies that in the restoration of all things, um, that when God rebuilds Israel, Gentiles explicitly will be, will be in included i'm like mm-hmm. wow that that's been there and they saw it with fresh eyes and quoted it um here in acts chapter 15 and i mm-hmm. think the same thing happens is is, is true like when um i'd like uh, like the the statement in second nephi 26 about black and white all are like unto god mm-hmm. it's been there since 1830 yep and i want you to tell me like seeing that with fresh eyes after 1978 like People, it's it was there, right? Yeah, it's been there. It's been there, mm-hmm. but people somehow didn't think when when Brigham Young was arguing for for the priesthood ban, why didn't he think to to see it that way? I don't know. What do you think? I mean, we know, but right, right. But, <laughs> but yeah, like, but, but that's sort of my point. Is like once we have whatever further light and knowledge we have about queer people, that will be revealed to the church as a whole yeah you know this has been revealed to us as queer people already Mm -hmm. i've heard i've heard of hundreds of people who have who are gay lesbian bisexual transgender or queer in the church and they're like you know what god god came to me and like i have a place so weird (laughs) but i I have a place i'm like yeah Mm -hmm. yeah we've heard it we've heard it it's very clear and and once once this is now known to everyone in the church just like the like Peter had to take a few hours to get the memo. Yeah. Uh, once it's clear to everyone in the church, we're going to go back and find all sorts of of pro queer readings mm-hmm. that I've been saying for like years. Yeah. Right. These have been here. People are going to like wonder, well, where was that? I'm like, you didn't listen to my podcast back in 2019. <laughs> <laughs> it was already laid out there. <laughs> Right, and people are going like, "Oh, now I see." Yeah, now you see. Now, now, yeah, once the once the once the prophet says it, then they'll be able to see it. This isn't even the first. Like, I mean, I know you say that's what's happening in this text as we read it in its ancient context, but this isn't even the first Latter Day uh, application of these scriptures. Right. Like, this happened when Galile when Galileo invented the telescope. Like, yeah. this gave us a whole another reading of Joshua mm, in the yeah. Hebrew Bible. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Like, 
We then knew that Earth wasn't actually the center of the universe, and Josh did not literally, I mean, he probably did ask God to stop the sun where it was, because that's how he understood Mm -hmm. the universe worked. But after Galileo, we started reading that stuff differently, significantly differently. And that is not, like, that's not the first time, and as you Mm -hmm. cited, like, what we just read in the ancient text in the New Testament, you know, further more further examples of this not happening. We have latter-day examples of this happening. This is happening in real time now, like you just said. We have instances where we are literally um, breathing intention into certain scriptures that has always been there, intention that was always there, and when we get this revelation from the top down, Mm -hmm. like you just said, you're going to be saying, I've been saying this (laughs) since 2019 on my podcast. I've been saying this since... I don't know how long you've been a theologian. <laughs> Shoot, a, lot, a, lot, a, a while, but <laughs> but but that brings me back to the really, um, really sort of creepy way that quote arguments from nature can work. I'm glad you brought up this this thing from. Uh, Sorry, arguments from nature. Arguments from nature. Okay, that is, people will say, "Well, look at nature," and you can just see that the sun is moving, and the earth, and you can feel that the earth is still. People. Uh-huh. Will, and it's, it's the best way of sneaking prejudices into uh, yeah. into your thing. Like, like anatomical people, complementarity. Yes, exactly. Okay. And so people will use arguments from nature, including parts fittedness, which in some other podcast, I'm going to completely demolish that because it makes no <laughs> sense. It makes no sense. Bonus right? content. I'll, I'll make right. a note. Right. Um, well, this is just a spoiler alert. If um, if you if this parts fittedness was was a central component to any ethical system of of responsible sex, it would um, rule out oral sex and anal sex even between men and women, mm. right? Because mm-hmm. you know. what do those do? Yeah, I mean, like and like in terms both in terms of the fittedness and in the procreation argument. And so I bet there's a whole bunch of hypocrites in their in their straight marriage that they're doing these things. Mm. And, and and gay couples do the, those, those those same things too, mm-hmm. and somehow it's different when we do it. Yeah, like I don't know. That's that's completely an argument from nature that fails. Yeah, but uh, so one of so that's sort of what people use for Romans one with Paul and yes. the argument against nature. But the only other um, argument against nature we've got from Paul is the the whole uh, hair thing, hair covering thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says like, doesn't nature teach you that? Um, that it's that it's a disgrace for a for a woman to have her, her head uncovered, things like that, and like no, I mean it doesn't. Like nature doesn't teach us that that long hair on men is a disgrace. Long hair on men is beautiful, according to me. I, I'm an expert on beautiful men. <laughs> um, so his his argument from nature is really an argument from social custom and from uh. from all these overlays. And let me get back to segregation. Okay, one of the most. Uh, peculiar arguments that I don't hear a lot anymore, but I, I heard it, uh, th- uh, you know, reading sermons from from segregationists. They said, "Look, if God wanted people of different races to mingle together, He wouldn't have put them on different continents." Mm. Which I'm like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And then you brought us here, <laughs> you know, you know, yeah. I mean, so but to them, that was convincing. They mm-hmm. said, "Look, this is how nature is. People of color over here, you know, people of less color are over here, mm-hmm. you know, and that's how it, that's how God put them. And so it's not for us to mingle them mm. and not and not to intermarriage. This was one of the leading arguments against interracial marriage, which, uh, of course, they couldn't use the procreation argument against that. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, just just these uh, these arguments from nature are are so easy to smuggle in your own biases and mm-hmm. just use whatever you're going to say and find it there. So that's that's my point about reading the Bible with with fresh eyes. Mm. Is um, all those other failed arguments? They all drop away. Mm. They all drop away in light of knowledge. Even Bruce McConkie recognized this after 1978 when he when he said, you know, all those things that I said, you know, forget them. Mm. Um, and that took courage to do, I think. Yeah. And my seventh point is that our stories will become the scriptures of the next generation. Mm. which is kind of implicit in everything I already said. But Cornelius, when he did this, he didn't have any scriptures to go on. Mm. Peter, when he did this, didn't have any scriptures to go on. That's the whole point of having a living prophet and having ongoing uh, ongoing uh, uh, revelation is that you get the latest update. Like your, you know, your iPhone is always wanting the latest update, and, and I think so <laughs> are we. So yes, what I was saying was all of our stories will become the scriptures of the the next generation and Cornelius didn't um didn't have it so vibrantly laid out for him but but his story was like when people ask Cornelius will show me in the scriptures he's like dude we're going to be in the scriptures <laughs> and i think a, i think a very similar thing is is true of of some of our um our black saints in the in the 70s um like Papa Gray and, and Elvisio Martins in in uh, Brazil, who who were at the forefront of of the prayers of of many people, I'm like, yeah, those names are going to be remembered. Well, all right, I like this idea of we writing our own scriptures right now. That yeah. our words are going to be pretty much the future of what the saints to come will be relying on for their spiritual strength. There, there's just one more thing I wanted yeah. to acknowledge. Um, one more thing I wanted to bring in. Um, you know, a lot of times I, I hear Bishop Simpson, uh, my bishop in my singles ward currently, mm-hmm. says a lot that it's not enough to not be mean. You mm-hmm. also have to embrace people. And I feel like one of the big lessons from the story of Peter and Cornelius is not that God told him to simply stop being racist. He told him he had to embrace Cornelius as well. Yeah, it wasn't enough for on his own terms, like I said, on his own terms, and that's an important one. So you know, I would just say to a lot of the saints presently, you know, it is so much more important to simply not be racist or not Mm -hmm. do say or do racist things. I mean, congratulations on not being racist, or congratulations on not being homophobic or not saying homophobic and racist things. But have you gone to the full measure? of what the gospel calls you to do. Because what it called Peter to do was not only to not belittle and not exclude Cornelius and those mm-hmm. like him, it called upon Peter to embrace Cornelius. It called upon him to bring people like Cornelius into the church because little did he know, and you know, we already got a picture of this with Stephen and Philip, as soon as the apostles brought the Greeks into the church, they were able to address Greek issues. Mm. And not only that, Stephen and Philip, even though they weren't necessarily called to the ministry that the rest of the apostles were called to, mm-hmm. they were still incredibly important and powerful ministers right. whose stories were told. And there are still OG apostles whose stories and whose sermons we don't have. Yeah. But we have Stephen's and we have Philip's. So I, I really hope we are not cheating ourselves by thinking that just because 
we do not act as the rest of the world does in terms of how we treat uh, people negatively, that that is enough. It is so necessary that we not only not be mean, that we not be homophobic and not be racist. Mm -hmm. What the gospel calls us to do is to truly diversify our faith by embracing people of different cultures, embracing people of different ethnicities, embracing people of different sexualities, because it is going to be, because that is our calling. And I believe it's in part because a lot of these people that we are supposed to be embracing are going to have Stephen level power, are going Mm. to have Philip level power. These people are not only... They not only need the gospel and need to feel the love of Jesus Christ as we feel it and as we enjoy it, but they are going to be the means by which we touch so many more lives and bring so many more people the gospel. Mm -hmm. And I just, uh, I mean, I didn't have that insight initially, but, you know, I don't remember what it was exactly that you said, but I think you actually used that word embrace Cornelius. And I was just like, that is what Peter was called to do. He was Mm -hmm. called to embrace Cornelius, not just not be mean to him or not just to not exclude him. So that's, that's just a thing I wanted to name while I was thinking about Mm -hmm. it. So let's go ahead. If there's nothing else we want to highlight in these chapters, then let's go ahead and move on to the prayer role. And you got the more important one. So I'd like you to go first. Yeah. So, so I saw on my Facebook, this little sponsored ad. Yo. By mutual. The, the app. (laughs) That was a sponsored ad for you. It was, it like came up in my little feed and said sponsored. And that was like this, (laughs) It was a um, mm-hmm. ad saying like, like download the latest update. We've updated our app, and so okay. I commented saying something like, "Hey, I'm I'm a a, a a faithful and loyal member of the church. I'm happy to be here, and I want to say that uh, my expectation is that in your next update, you include um, men seeking men and women seeking women in your functionality." And I never got an official thing back from the mutual people. But several pe- a couple of people commented, and one person commented saying um, that goes against the belief that goes against our beliefs. They can go on Tinder. They can go on Tinder. They can go on Tinder. <laughs> Not even you, mm-hmm. because this person was probably assuming that I'm straight, which I don't know why you would do that. But <laughs> she probably didn't 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 hear me talk or. <laughs> but anyway and just to think like to speak about my people as if we're not in the room is, mm-hmm. a, is a mistake that that people will always make in part because many of my people are closeted in the church mm-hmm. but even when we're not they somehow speak to us like like we're not even there like we're not even part of the conversation they can go on tinder which is really um not not at all uh, uh, and let me just back up and sort of defend my argument for why mutual should uh, include this functionality even when people in the church may uh, find it problematic because I think their argument is well at at this point in our church um, gay sex is forbidden and gay marriage is forbidden which this app isn't about sex or marriage mm-hmm uh, uh, it's exclusively. a dating app. It's a dating app. It's a date, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for meeting, for dating. And if you look at the way of the law, the law of chastity is is written currently. There's nothing to prevent two men from from holding hands or kissing or dating or holding holding themselves out to be boyfriend and boyfriend. Um, there's nothing that prevents two girls from from identifying as as a couple. There's uh, you know, and so. 
there's there's nothing in our policy or doctrine that would eliminate um, uh, that basically the way it's currently written in our doctrine and policy an unmarried gay couple can do anything an unmarried straight couple can do mm. right there are boundaries on on unmarried straight couples um, but you know Oaks came out in April saying we're gonna we're gonna deal with immorality in in gay relationships the same as straight relationships those weren't his exact words but but that was his point in the repeal of the November exclusion policy he said look that's how we're gonna deal deal with this so that I think a similar case can be made of look yes um, according to the way people interpret the policy and doctrine now they say that gay couples can't have sex now unmarried couples can't have sex either so there's this big hypocrisy. People will say, well, what if gay couples use this app and then have sex? Well, what if straight couples use this app and then have mm-hmm. sex before marriage? I'm sure that has happened more than like more than once. It's <laughs> happened a lot. Yeah. I'm sure it's happened a lot. Yeah. But they don't block them from participating in uh in the app, right? There's nothing as far as I know, there's nothing on Mutual that says, like, I promise to never have sex with the, the people that I meet on Mutual. <laughs> right? Straight people, if straight people don't have to make that promise, why are gay people, why, why are gay people excluded? Mm-hmm. Because here's the problem. If you want to keep gay people in the church, even on the margins, you need to find a way for us to to find one another to find other see that's my problem is i can find many gay people i can't find many people who are gay and want to be connected to the church and willing to date Mm -hmm. that would keep so many gay people in the orbits of the church i think it's best it's good for them it's good for the church like our church is not wanting to look homophobic right Mm -hmm. and i realize that mutual isn't an official project of the church but it's people speaking under the influence and in the name of what they think the church would want Mm. and my point is there's nothing in our doctrine or policy that would would prevent us from in fully good conscience from having um, the ability for for gay and lesbian couples um, to meet on on mutual so that's my logic and so that when they say this goes against our beliefs I'm like no it doesn't mm-hmm. it really doesn't like I for every moment that you have thought about this issue, I've thought about it for at least 15 hours, probably literally. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about these things all the time, and I've like look, shaken the tree from every angle and examined both sides of every leaf. There is no way that that, that stance is justified. And I get that she, maybe she's not a scholar, but you can at least be a decent person and, say, and not say something like they can go on Tinder because mm-hmm. on Tinder, that's not going to help me meet other gay men who are... Latter-day Saints mm-hmm. and want to, to stay connected to the church. That's the whole point of having that's like saying straight people can go on Tinder. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, they can, but that's not the point. Yeah. They want to meet other Latter-day Saints. And I think the type of gay man or, or gay woman who wants to meet uh, someone on Mutual is going to be the type of person that's going to want to stay uh, connected in some way with the church. Mm-hmm. Um, or And so I'm like I just don't understand how how, how people can uh, can do this, and I'm wondering what the mutual people will say. Um, but yeah, so this the and then there was another comment to this to to the similar effect after that one. I can't remember the exact wording of it, but yeah, that's my. So I hope to 
to pray for them. Not 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 that they get punished, but that they have a sense mm-hmm. of enlightenment and that God will fill them with a loving embrace towards what is different. Um, and that will draw them closer to Christ. So I'm not actually worried about me. I'm fine. Yeah. They're the ones that are in trouble with Christ yeah. right now. I, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm cool. We're cool. I'm going to go ahead and rub it in their faces, though, when Mutual does eventually make that update. Because, yeah. yo, that... Well, let me just ask you. What do you. I don't know what would be the best strategy to, to write a nicely, letter, nicely worded letter to Mutual, to organize a petition of saying... We are straight people who use mutual and we want you to do this. Mm-hmm. Or would it be better to have essentially a boycott of we are straight people and we won't use mutual until you make this change? I don't know. I see. I'm not a stra- uh, I'm not an expert on strategy. I'm a theologian. <laughs> right? Yes. I'd have a much better job if I knew more about the world, the way the real world works. But yeah, what do you think? Well, I don't what do think you, what would you do as a straight person? Well, I don't think I'm not of the opinion that people are going to stop using mutual for any reason. Um, not to protest uh, what mutual is currently do, doing with regard to not including um, relationships for members of the LGBTQ community, not including same gender relationships, and I'm also not inclined to believe that people are going to stop mutual stop using mutual if they allow that to happen. Mm. So uh, I'm taking option three off the board because I don't think that's going to do anything. But I do think a letter could do something. You know, in my experience, white people love letters, so you know, writing a nicely worded letter uh, might do something. But I think creating some noise. Uh, Creating a little bit of noise around your story, similar to what happened with Tacovi the other day, mm-hmm. could certainly at least draw their attention to it and certainly allow them to consider it. Because I don't feel they have anything mm-hmm. to lose by allowing same gender people on the same gender relationships on their platform. Like the people who are going to stop using using the current number one dating app for Mormons, like that's just not going to happen. Like yeah, if you want could. to improve. Yeah your odds of finding the one, you're not going to stop using mutual. Like, mm-hmm. that's off the board. Yeah, I'm wondering what these people that are anti-gay, like, what do they want me to do? Do they want... And what business is it of theirs? Here's the thing. Like, I, I want to ask them. They're like, I've heard people say, oh, all these gay men, they should just marry women. Do you, I'm going to go to their... Look in them in the eye and say, do you want me marrying your daughter? Because <laughs> literally, do you want me marrying your daughter? Because I'm sure that on many levels, this would be really great for her. And on one important way, it's not going to be great for her at all. She's not going to be happy on a certain way that, that I that – I, I mean, if she wants to, like, do other fun stuff, <laughs> other fun gay stuff, like going shopping and decorating, like, we can do that together. Yeah. But there's, there's going to be a big important thing that only I could do for her that I can't do for her. Mm-hmm. And it's like, is that really what you want? You mm-hmm. want p- people like me – dating your daughter and for, for some of them this is actually an improvement over whatever straight guy they are dating because <laughs> i'm going to treat her with respect and like all these but anyway but they do they don't even think they don't even think that's why i think most people in the church haven't even given this more than 20 or 30 minutes of thought in their entire life as mm-hmm. to what the actual thing they're claiming is yeah they haven't counted the cost at all yeah. like the idea that you know to subject somebody to that kind of loneliness like mm-hmm. They really have not thought about it, and uh, that needs that needs to change. I really hope that perhaps your story can be used as some kind of some kind of flashpoint to uh, consider that, or at the very least, just let people know that what you do in your dating life is none of their business, because mm-hmm. you alone bear the cost of that. So let Derek live his best gay life. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, at the very least, they can allow you that much. Yeah. 
How now? I hate to put you on the spot here, but suppose this. Suppose we were back in 1975, and somehow we had the internet back then, mm-hmm. and there was a dating app, but it didn't let you match people interracially. Mm-hmm. Like, it's obviously it's not exact. It's not even. It's not even closely the, the same situation. Yeah, but there's a sense in which it's the same wrongheaded thinking that's kind of connected to both of them. Mm-hmm. Like we've got our doctrine, because that's what her argument was. Is like we've got our doctrine, we've got our beliefs, and they can go on Tinder. Well, like, uh, yeah, I don't know what to. Is that? I don't know what they would. Yeah, what? How would? Yeah, I would react very much the same way you are. Uh, the first way you said when somebody came to you with that, I would be like, no, it's not. Like, this isn't our doctrine. In fact, there was one point, you know, I can say this having, you know, being a black saint. At one point, as a matter of fact, I was able to hold the priesthood. And at one point, there was that word I can't pronounce, miscegenation. I don't know what it is, but like, yeah. at one point, this wasn't an issue at all for members of the church. So why can't we go back to that? I would simply say, is it though? Is it our doctrine though? And would hope that somebody heard me out. Now, unfortunately, the thing about being in privilege is you can ignore those people without it because it doesn't affect you. And I don't know how I would attack that because in, in terms of actually uh, making change happen, I have always been a rebel. I've never been an advocate. I've never been an organizer. And I've never been a helper. So, like, any way I could rebel, I would seek that course of action to make sure that my people can marry who they want to marry and to make sure that your people are afforded mm-hmm. that same privilege. But I don't know what I would have done back then because, you know, they didn't even look at black people as fully human as they do now-ish. <laughs> and I'm hesitant to even say that much. But um, mm-hmm. I know that back then there are certain things I would not have been able to get away with that I'm doing now with impunity. So yeah. I don't know. You know, I don't know. I would have uh, – this is – I don't know if this is the right thing, but if I think if I were back in the 70s, I would have tried to make the argument – that we're all of African descent because that is the origin. Oh, why people would lose their minds of of like if 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 you're banning all people of African descent, you have to ban everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to like Rachel Dolezal and erase actual black people, <laughs> but to uh, to point out the hypocrisy in what they're actually saying. We're all one people. We are one race. Mm-hmm. Um, we're all descended from. Yeah, and and we're, we we uh, we evolved as a species in Africa. Mm-hmm. That is our that is our homeland. That is our genesis. Um, when you go far back enough, I'm like, this it's it just makes no sense because people, yeah, <laughs> yeah, ah, uh, things I don't have to think about. Things we straights do not have to think about, thankfully. But uh, yeah, I I do want to continue to address this in some way, Derek, and I'm interested to see how we address this. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and move on to, you know, my prayer role. Now, Derek, let me ask you a couple of questions. Uh Uh-oh. Yes. If a police officer walked into a Starbucks seeking a coffee, would you feel threatened? No. Well, it depends on what I'm doing. It depends on what you're doing. Okay, that's a a fine answer. (laughs) If he walked... Let's say, let's say a police officer had a child at this school that you are currently working at. Yeah. And he came to your school to pick up his child. Would you feel threatened by that? No, no. Okay. If an officer of the law 
went into the IRS office to ask a question about a letter he received from the IRS. Would you feel threatened by that? No. Okay. Oops. (laughs) You're going to have to hold that for the duration of the episode now. (laughs) Well, as it so happens. And I just want to name part of the reason I'm not threatened by cops is is white privilege, right? Okay. Yes. I want to name that as I can walk. I can actually, you know, yell in a cop's face and not worry about, which I've done at at Black Lives Matter protests. Mm Mm-hmm. And not worry that the color that the color of my skin will cause anyone to be afraid of me. Okay then. Okay then. Well, this is what happened this week. An Ohio police officer, sheriff deputy actually, in full uniform, wearing his police issue badge, police issue uniform, carrying his police issue weapon in his holster or whatever, he was walking in to an IRS building. And he faced a rather scary moment, a rather tense and scary moment. He was simply asking a question about a letter he received from the IRS. And then he got confronted by, what was this dude's name? Seth Eklund. I don't know if I'm saying that right, so I'm just going to call him Paul Blart from here on out. Okay. Um, He confronted this man in full uniform, wearing his police officer uniform, and said, hey, you have a gun. Can you leave that outside? And then the real cop, and his name is Alan Gaston, uh, the sheriff deputy. The real cop said, I can't leave my weapon out because I'm a real cop. I have to have my weapon on. Right. Me. He's on, I think he was on duty, too. Like yeah. On official business so or like, something. Yeah. So you got to. Uh, so he has to keep his weapon on him. And then Officer Paul Blart did not like that. So he drew his weapon. Now, something else you got to know about this situation. This is America. And Alice and Sheriff and uh, Sheriff Deputy Alan Gaston is a black man. So even though he's a cop and he's wearing his police issued uniform with his badge, this officer who this security officer felt threatened enough by the policeman's presence that he drew his weapon on Gaston and he walked him out of the building. Now, that in and of itself is pretty absurd, but that is not where this story ends. Now, something else that needs to be named is Alan Gaston is a uh, instructor in defensive. Uh, oh gosh, what is it called? Defensive. He he's an instructor in de-escalation techniques. Mm-hmm. That is what Alan Gaston does in you know his particular precinct or whatever. Yeah. So he starts walking away from Paul Blart, who still has his weapon drawn, and um, he's trying to de- de-escalate the situation. The next thing that happens while you know, Alan Gaston is fearing for his life, is he instructs the people at this IRS office to call the cops. And guess what they say? There is a man here who has a gun and he won't relinquish his weapon or leave the area. They conveniently left out the fact that this man with his gun is a police officer. They just conveniently leave that all the way out. So, like, how much... Do you have to hate black people to draw a gun on one in a police uniform? And, you know, let me just add that police, particularly in these last three years or so, have been white people's co-opted anti-Negro enforcers. And mm-hmm. you call the cops on this guy, deliberately leaving out the detail that he is an officer of the law. Like, I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> well, what if they call the cops and more black cops show up? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That would that would have been perfect, but that is not actually what happened. Two cops did arrive on the scene; both of them were white, and uh, they, you know, neutralized the situation. But uh, yeah, like whatever training 
whatever training this guy had, the, the security officer, it totally failed him and he needs to get fired. But Lord knows what's probably going to happen is he's going to get hired in another city for the same job because that's what happens in America. If you mess up in one precinct, you can literally get hired in another one or get transferred to another mm. one and be the same kind of problem. Now, mm. I don't know if you know this, but Ryan O'Neill, the guy who uh, gunned down a black man in South Bend, Indiana, um, you know, Mayor Pete's hometown. He apparently had a history of racial violence as an officer of the law. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. He's got history of this, and he killed, and he still killed somebody. Like he killed a black man. So I'm not surprised that this happened, but I'm more so really let down that the more than likely course of action is going to be nil. Like history shows that little to mm-hmm. nothing is going to be done to rectify what happened to Alan Gaston. So. I'm not exactly sure who to pray for. I'm definitely going to pray for Officer Paul Blart because, you know, he's going to need the prayers. I hope he never finds another, you know, police or security officer job. And I really hope that this city in Ohio rectifies this situation, makes sure that their training is more complete and efficacious, and also just hopefully is a flashpoint to make some changes in the future about anti-blackness in policing. Now, here's what I don't get is, is like if I were this, like security guard, this white security guard, and, and there was a cop there, I would not feel safe pulling a gun on a cop. For real? But I think it's his white privilege that let, lets him think, like, look, I can do this. He clearly didn't think this guy was a cop. Like, he just got that outfit from Party City or something. Like, he uh, he really Is thought... that what he was claiming, that, that this was a f- cop in a fake uniform? He clearly thought it was a fake cop, though. I'm sure that's what he claimed. But actually, he didn't. Well, he hasn't spoken to anybody yet. But so we don't know well, what exactly I, he thought. I, I would not. I my theory is that if I draw a, a gun on a cop, I am I'm not going to live. Right. Which is ironic because so many black men who don't have guns mm-hmm. get claimed like, oh, I thought he had a gun. Mm-hmm. And like this is like you couldn't. A, the best <laughs> fiction writer in the world couldn't have come up with what happened here. Yep. And with with all of its ironies and, yep. and drama. Like yep. I. You couldn't write a better mess than that. Mm-hmm. Like, what? what is going to happen now? Like, I feel like we have reached the peak, the pinnacle of, like, black innocence in one of these situations. He was a cop. He didn't even draw his own weapon when he had right. a weapon drawn on him. He de-escalated. He walked away. He was getting ready to get shot in the back. And, like, still, I don't think anything is going to happen, which is the most disheartening mm-hmm. thing about this mm-hmm. story. Little to nothing is going to be done to rectify it, but I really hope that this absurd situation will start a new kind of discussion. Like, even when a black man is an officer of the law, even when he is a sheriff deputy, even when he is de-escalating the situation, he can still have a gun pulled on him. He could still die. So Yeah, I wonder, like, would it have been helpful for a white person to get in, the, in between them and shield the, the cop? The black cop, I'm like, I don't know if that would have worked. Who knows? Um, Who knows? I don't know. There's, there's just so many ways this could go wrong, which, which I just want to draw out that this isn't just the system went wrong in this one point. We've got systemic issues in here around the training of of security guards. There's mm-hmm. a whole bunch of things mm-hmm. that led to this. Yes. And if you just look at oh this this one stupid security guard. You're not you're not seeing the whole problem. Yes, you have to. We have an entire climate and culture that's behind all of this. Mm-hmm. That's been largely unexamined by by most 
white people. Yeah. Um, and we need to think how this happened mm-hmm. or else, you know, it will happen again. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's all I wanted to say about that. Yeah. So um, we'll pray for them. We will pray for them. And I think that'll do us for today's episode of Beyond the Block. Unless, yeah. Derek, you have any announcements? That's it. Uh, just share this with people. Um, share this as soon as you can so that they have time to go through this before Sunday. Um, yes. And, and bring this to, even if you're not a teacher, mm-hmm. um, you can you can bring up these things in your classes. Like yes. Audience participation is so much better mm-hmm. um, than having hearing everything from the teacher. So, mm-hmm. so comment on these things in your class. Yes. Uh, on Sunday. And, Absolutely. And talk about these things with your family and friends. And get us your feedback, too. Like, yeah. uh, we're always anxious to know what else we can do for you guys. Uh, we are thinking about and have been talking about potentially launching a Patreon in the future. We do want to give more content to you guys, and it also wouldn't hurt for us to be able to offset some of the costs of us recording these episodes as well as the equipment that we've gotten to make sure the quality of you know the episodes is up to par for you guys. So uh, let us hear from you guys, and uh, let us know what you want us to talk about or you know how you're liking the show or what we can improve on. We'd greatly appreciate it. Okay, thanks. Take care, everybody. Okay, bye.